0: The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. What does it mean to be present, to try and stay in the moment that you're in and not worry about the future or regret the past? It's something I've been trying to do for a long time. I'm Diane Ray, and I have always had questions about the big picture, God, life after death, spirituality, metaphysics, and what drives people to do what they do. And I like to ask them about it and learn from it. If you're a seeker like me, I hope you join me for some of these conversations on the podcast and be present with me in this moment. Welcome to the podcast today and thanks for tuning in for the conversation. I really hope that this is going to inspire you like it's inspired me because the person today that I'm going to be introducing you to is really unforgettable. Most people don't think of AIDS in the 90s as something that affected women and families. And until August 20th, 1990, Julie Lewis was one of those people. On that day, she was diagnosed with HIV from a blood transfusion and was just thrust from the world of a suburban mom into the scary and unpredictable world of AIDS. And Julie was initially told that she had three to five years to live. Now, over 39 years later, we're happy to say, she shares her story in her new memoir called Still Positive. And this amazing book chronicles her journey from simply surviving her diagnosis to becoming an advocate, educator, and leader of the 3030 Project with her son, Grammy-winning artist Ryan Lewis from McLemore and Lewis. I'm sure that sounds familiar. So Julie works to bring accessible health care to women and families around the world, and she has a great story to share. So welcome to the podcast. I'm really glad you could join me today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to to talk more about it. Well,
0: you started writing this book at the urging of your son Ryan, and it was right around the time COVID hit. Every, everything's shutting down. I mean, being in your in your situation, your health situation, you must have been worried about COVID. I mean, did that kind of spur you to finish the book and you know get your thoughts uh,
1: down? Absolutely. I um I, well, I live in Seattle, and COVID uh, in the United States actually originated in Seattle. Um, And it was our um, our nursing home system over um, on the east side of King County that was hit first very hard. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know. I was very aware that I have a compromised immune system that people didn't know a lot about it. I was very careful, you know, I mean, I had a really privileged position in that I wasn't working at, you know, the grocery store or, or, you know, I didn't have to go somewhere. So um, on March 4th, 2020, when it really got bad here in Seattle, my kids literally came over here, put me in Ryan's truck and drove me to a, a cabin he has over in Eastern Washington. They were so worried about me, and you know, and this was the funny thing. They said, "You just have to stay there for two weeks." <laughs> I mean, you know that people didn't know. And literally, right. I, I, was, I lived over there for about a year. And yes, I had started the book, um, but being that I'm a, um, a public speaker, uh, I had a lot of events on my calendar that immediately, like, all public events just got shut down. So I suddenly had a whole bunch of space, you know, um, to write. And I was a little, one of my really good friends was one of the first people who died in New York. Um, So I started writing pretty fast. And it wasn't like it was very good writing, but I just wanted to get all the details of the story down. And I just thought to myself, if something happens to me, someone else can rewrite this better than this, you know, like, but I just wanted to get all the information down and I wrote uh, the rest of the book. Uh, I finished it May 31st. So I wrote really fast it, and it was way too long. It was a very long book, but I, I'm a science teacher, health teacher. So I'm really good at factual writing, like, but nobody wants to read. That. <laughs> you know, I, It really lacked, you know, interest, humor, layers of culture, all the things that you want in a book, um, which really my co-author uh, Jenny Koenig brought into the book. I mean, she's really good at that. So so anyway, that's kind of the book, the origins of the book story. Yeah, yeah the, the oh, start.
0: Yeah. I mean, people forget, I like, guess I remember thinking back to that time and I had um, a friend of mine post and he lives in Seattle, he was working for Amazon. And he was one of the first people I knew that really got sick from COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, really sick. And this was a young guy that ran marathons, super healthy. And then he was showing pictures of himself in the hospital on a ventilator. And you're know, like, wow, you know, this this really is scary. So yeah. I can imagine at that time it was, was really it was. And scary and nerve wracking. My husband's
1: brother, my brother-in-law, actually died of COVID with no pre existing conditions. I mean, he wasn't super young but he was in his sixties. And so, yeah, it became very real to us pretty fast. So you had a lot of time
0: though. You got your thoughts down and you take us on, you know, quite the journey in the book, you know, your, your whole memoir, your whole life story. And as as I was thinking about talking to you today and then, you know, mentioning COVID and then I'm kind of thinking back, like I'm, I'm in my fifties. I mean, I remember the early days of of AIDS and when all that was happening. And there's people that are listening that, that might not remember that, you know, that time period, what happened. since
1: I wrote the book actually. I just wanted, um, you know, that time in history to, um, to include women and families and for some of the stories that are less often told to be told. And then also just, I, I, you know, the middle middle part of the book has a lot of, um, stories about friends of mine who were on my speakers bureau who also died. And, you know, so many of them, you Google them, they don't exist. Their families did not have funerals. They did not want people to know. And so it's like they disappeared. And I just didn't want them to. I mean, at one point, I you know, a couple of my editors and publishers said, why don't you just change everyone's name? And I said, I mean, that's the whole point. These were brave people who were on a speaker's bureau at a very scary time for them who went public. Changing their name is like the I want their name to be preserved. Changing their name is like the last thing I want to do if I can, you know. So right. yeah. Well their stories should be told and people should
0: not forget and they should remember, you know, what that experience and that fear was like around an AIDS diagnosis. I mean, and and at the time, like you describe in the book, you know, you were a suburban mom, you had young kids, never in your wildest dreams, could you would have imagined that this would be something that you would have to deal with. And, and at that time, especially, I mean, in, in the early 90s, um, I, I mean, can you share a little bit about what your feelings were at that time? You know, the, the shock and,
1: yeah, well, two things uh, about, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. First, I'm a health teacher, so I was well aware of HIV and and, um, and AIDS and, you know, how it was transmitted and all that. I also have a very dear gay brother who I had asked, whose friends were dying from um, the mid-80s on, just one after another. And um, I asked him many times, you know, are, are you are UHIB positive? And all he would say back to me was, you don't have to worry about me, I'm fine. But he would never say no, right? And so I did learn a lot about the disease because I was very concerned. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, I got this shock and I didn't know anything about it. Um, also, I was really sick in 1989. And I went to the doctor many, many times and tried to figure it out. And, you know, I, I did have three kids in four years. I mean, like shoot me, it was like a lot of little kids, but you know, the doctors would just keep saying, well, you have those three little kids, you must be so exhausted. And I, I said, I know what exhausted is. This isn't that. And so when I got the phone call, which is where the story starts, the first chapter is called the phone call. Um, from my, uh, the doctor who delivered my my oldest daughter, um, who said, you know, one of the people who donated blood from your blood transfusion has AIDS, and you should go get an HIV test. And then he said, you know, it was a six and a half years ago. So he could have, you know, or she could have contracted it after that. Um, but I knew immediately, it's like, this is the missing, you know, thing that I have not you know, I I have, this has to be it because I had been so sick and all of my symptoms, you know, then when I read, you know, classic early HIV symptoms, it's like, oh my God, it, it was just every single one. So, so, um, my big concern, uh, was my family. Uh, I had Teresa in 1984 when I had the blood transfusion and then I had two more kids. And at that time, you know, they had a 25 to 30% chance of being infected. And um, and then Teresa had breastfed. So after I got infected and, um, you know, when you first get infected, the amount of HIV in your body spikes and then it goes down and and then it slowly goes back up. But um, so I was really worried about her, too. And then, you know, Scott and I, uh, six and a half years, I'm pregnant half that time. So, of course, we're not using any kind of protection and then he had a vasectomy so the poor guy you know it's like but you know that's it's harder for a woman to infect a man because a man's parts are all on the outside and a woman you have all the semen inside you you know it's just women are more um more apt to get infected sexually but um but still even though it was harder for a woman to infect a man we tried for six and a half years pretty regularly you know so i really thought any or all of them could be infected. And it took us four days to get those test results back. And that was hell. Um, I mean, when the person finally called the nurse at the doctor's office and said I was the only one that was infected, I was relieved. I mean, I wasn't like some people, it's like the worst day of their life. I was so happy. It was just me. And um, I was just like, I I can deal with this. I'll deal with this. You know, <laughs> my kids aren't dying. This is good. You know. Wow so,
0: it's it's yeah. so amazing. And what the other thing that really struck me in you telling that part of the story is that you know you were saying you you felt run down, you felt sick. The fact that they weren't really testing blood at that time is just
1: so shocking. And well, that they were, they were in 1984. They weren't. Uh, they didn't have. Right. A test. That test uh, for testing the blood at the blood banks um, started in the summer of 1985. But, you know, no doctor, I asked the doctors, like, why didn't you, co- I had a blood transfusion. Why didn't you consider that maybe I had HIV and all, all of them were like, you just didn't look like someone who should have HIV. Right. You know?
0: That's what I thought was so incredible. And then you kind of juxtapose that with the experience of your brother yeah. Where he, you know, he was afraid to even say anything like the stigma was so great that yeah. for some reason, because of, of him being gay that, you know, he quote deserved it or something like that, yes. Yes. you know, where you were like the innocent victim. And yeah. I just think those, um, perceptions are just so crazy.
1: Yeah. When I ran the Speakers Bureau, we would have, you know, we were in a bit, a bigger small town, Spokane, which is, uh, on the Idaho border. Um, But we served a huge rural area of um, the red, the red part of Washington State, really liberal east of the mountains, really conservative. um, No, really liberal west of the mountains, really conservative east. And so we went to all these farming towns and I did high school assemblies or I brought people and the schools would call and they would like to special order a speaker like you would on the menu. They're like, well, we don't really want, you know, a gay speaker. We don't really want an IB you know, anyone who's using Uh, Drugs. You know, maybe you could have uh, that mom and her daughter, the six-year-old who's infected. Maybe they could come and like, (laughs) it's like, uh, sorry, you can't do that. You're going to get who we send. Right. You can't pick and choose, you know, just sort of make it palatable. You know, all of our speakers, you deserve your sympathy and support. And we don't actually have a special order section here.
0: Right. that That's so interesting. It was
1: sad. And, you know, we we tackled that on our speakers row by just prefacing when we went to speak that um, they could ask any question. But the one question they couldn't ha- ask unless we offered it ourselves was how we got infected, because that was the first question. Everybody asked that first because that informed them how they were going to feel about you. And we just thought that was the easiest way to just combat that, um, that kind of um, what we called it, the compassion gradient, you know? Right. (laughs)
0: Yes, That snap judgment, that judgments that people make.
1: Yeah. And people were fearful. I mean, even, you know, I mean, yes, I was an innocent victim. I mean, um, but, you know, still, especially in the medical community, I mean, even my daughter, when she went to um, get her appendix out, emergency appendectomy, they would not operate on her until she got an HIV test because they knew I was HIV positive because it's a small town and I'm a public speaker. But it was like, what do you think I'm doing to her that she would get HIV? Here's a kid I can tell you has had two HIV tests, you know, and I haven't been, you know. Doing anything with her that would give her, you know, it. but still they would not do it. They would not operate until she had an HIV test, you know, and then I changed doctors after that. But, but yeah, it, there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear um, and a lot of misinformation.
0: Right, so much, um, and and still, I'm sure there's a lot out there today. Um, I have a a very good friend who uh, was diagnosed HIV positive in the early to mid 90s, and I mean he's still doing really great today, very low uh, T cell count. Um, you know, but back then, like when you heard about a diagnosis, it, it was like, oh my god, you know, it's it's the death sentence, and also the treatments there at, at that time were, were so much more you know, intensive. And you describe what you went through uh, physically yeah. um, at that time. And you know, people probably aren't aware of what a toll that the early treatments took on your body. It was pretty yeah. intense, wasn't it?
1: It was very intense, um, more intense for some than others. Uh, I I was diagnosed uh, in August of 1990 and AZT had been in trials and had just come out not very or, you know, not very um, long before that. And um, so you had to take it every four hours on the dot. If you didn't take it, you could become resistant to it. Um, So they gave, when I first went on it, my first doctor appointment, they gave me a beeper that went off every four hours and then you could put your pills in there. But I wasn't, I didn't tell hardly anyone for four years. So, you know, you kind of have to, like hide your beeper. Um, But, you know, AZT made me the sickest I've ever been in my life. Um, Yeah, I really would have quit it if it wasn't for my brother telling me I might die if I quit it. You know, I mean, people died from it. But, you know, if you've seen Dallas Buyers Club, I mean, that was real. It was very toxic. Um, but after three or four months on it, the symptoms did get better. Um, and I was on it for five years. Uh, so, because there wasn't a lot of other options. Uh, and then in the mid nineties, the protease inhibitors, a whole new drug class came out and then from then on medicines have gotten so much better, but you know, I've counted and I've taken over 60,000 pills since I was diagnosed, um, and wow. I have injectables and, you know, patches and all kinds of stuff. Um. Because not only were the drugs really powerful and made you fairly sick, then you'd have to go on all these other drugs to like relieve the side effects of the HIV drugs. So, you know, at one point, I think I was taking 12 to 15 pills a day. Um, And now I only take one pill for HIV. It has a couple medicines in it and it's all buffered and it's time released. And so it equals number, like you don't want to miss that one pill because it, it equals a lot of pills. Um, But they've, You know, the thing is, the medicines today, they even have injectables that last for a few weeks. Um, uh, They have all kinds of options. So if people have access to the medications these days, not only should they have a normal lifespan, but also if you can get your viral load undetectable, HIV is really not um, transmittable. So, you know, it's, it's a good day. To, if you have to be HIV positive, you know, if you can get your medicine and take it. And I've heard that they have one coming out where you might only have to get like a shot every three months. Um, don't quote me on that. But I mean, they're just <laughs> getting smarter and smarter and better and better at treating HIV. And well, hopefully, that's
0: great to hear that there's been so many advances in the treatment from what you experienced, because it just sounded like hell.
1: Yeah, what, what you went and it was all a big experiment, and there were no women and chil- children, hardly at all. Or there, there were no children, but hardly any women in the trials because you know they were so afraid that that woman might be pregnant. You know, like women just weren't on the radar. So basically, when they put kids and women on these meds, it was trickle down science. I mean, like they hadn't actually been, you know, in trials. It, we were just they're messing with doses kids and adults and especially women. And so um yeah, it was a big experiment, but you wanted to be part of it because the you know the other option was bad.
0: You know? Right. So, you you wanted that chance and you're gonna take yes, it. Exactly. If you were given it. I mean, so I was curious about the the way that something like this affects your life. Like when you're told you have three to five years to live, which is yeah unbelievable. I mean, that changes your day-to-day perspective. It has to. I mean, we always hear cliches and things like, you know, the Tim McGraw song, live like you were dying, things like that. I mean, you actually had to do that. I did. To to live with that hanging over your head. I mean, what would you tell people, you know, coming from the perspective of
1: really living like that? I mean,
0: how does that change?
1: It's really hard. Um, Well, well, and the doctor, he didn't just say, You have three to five years to live. He said, if you're lucky, you might possibly live three to five years, but your last two years are going to be really bad. So go do whatever you want to do now. And he started out the whole conversation with, um, do you have a living will? And I'm like, who the, you know, who, what 32 year old has a living will? You know, I'm like, one that's going to die soon. And then his next question was, are your things in order? So... Yeah, I was just that that was a really hard day for me because it just hit me like I'm dying. Like, you know, everything that I, all the positive thoughts I had before, you know, I kind of like had to deal with this. Like this doctor doesn't actually think I'm going to last very long. And even with the three year plan, I wouldn't even seen my youngest, Ryan, get into grade school. Like <laughs> so it was a lot. Uh, And then they put me on a medicine that literally I couldn't get off the couch. I was throwing up 10 times a day. And so it was a lot. I don't even know how to to describe it. And I'm sure there are people with cancer and different things who have had a similar experience um, with chemotherapy and, and a bad diagnosis. And then it's this disease that we couldn't tell anyone about. Like, we could, I couldn't tell anyone. Um, I couldn't trust anyone. I didn't want all of a sudden people not being able to send their kids to our house because they were afraid of me, right? And my kids are two, four, and six. So I want to look like a fairly functioning mom. I don't want to worry them. So it was layered. It was a layered, like, horrible situation. Um, and so through the first few months, I just, I all I could do was deal with the day I was in, like there was no thinking of every four hours when that beeper went off, it just reminded me I was dying, you know. (laughs) And then I had these little kids, and I wanted to, I didn't want them to remember me as, you know, a sad, awful mom. So I'm faking every day, like trying to just do, I just get through the day. And then, you know, as, as the, the medications got a little better and I was still, all I could think about was all the things I was going to miss in their lives. I mean, I wasn't afraid of dying. You know, I, I have a pretty strong faith. Um, I don't like to think how, how you're going to die the actual, you know, physical part, but you know, I wasn't like uh, sad about the actual dying. I was just sad about all the things I was going to miss And so I thought about those constantly. And then one day I woke up and it was probably six to eight months in. And I just sat there and I thought, I don't feel any more dead today than I did yesterday. And then I just decided I was just going to pretend like I was going to live. Because waiting to die is a terrible way to live. It's so depressing. It's so backwards, you know, and I just thought, Till I'm actually on that deathbed, taking my last breath, I'm just not. I'm gonna dive deep into denial, take my medicine. But it's like I'm at least gonna talk about the future because even if the future never happens, better to imagine it than nothing at all, right? Right. Absolutely. Living differently, and it made all the difference. Um, You know, while I was watching everyone around me die, but but still we all kind of were living like that you know and telling jokes and trying to laugh and it's it's nice to have three little kids it's pretty hard to be sad all the time when you have three you know a 2-year-old a 4-year-old and a 6-year-old they're quite entertaining and you know and yeah, I just, they keep
0: keep your spirits up
1: They do and they give you something else to think about and um so I was lucky. I had people. I've always had a pretty strong community of people around. It has
0: to be, I would think, like a master class and just, you know, when you made that shift, you talk about like, you're you're going to live in the moment, right? And not worry about, okay, there's a guillotine hanging somewhere. I'm going to enjoy what I have now. And yes, I'm still going to plan for the future, but I, I have to really, you know, be be here, you know?
1: Yeah. And within that, I am writing letters to my kids. Because I'm thinking if I do die, they're never going to know me like they're going to be raised by some other woman. Probably, you know, like I have a really good looking, great husband. He's not going to be single for the next 30 years. You know, they're going to be, you know, their kids are going to be calling someone else grandma. And so I started thinking, you know, my kids are just going to remember me as a little kid would remember their mom. So I started writing notes to them as their adult self. Um, And that was sad so yeah, it's, hard, so, it's
0: heartbreaking
1: so you live in this weird space where you have to deal with some things as real but also you can't live there you know but so it and, and everyone i knew on this speakers grill, like my regular friends who weren't hiv positive you know i had different conversations with them than I did with other people with HIV. And, um, and I don't know what my life would have been like without that community of people with HIV, because it was the only place I could have a really real conversation. Um, yeah, right. So, and draw from their support. Yeah. So uh, you know, if you're dealing with something hard, whether it's medical or whatever, I do think there's real value in just um, forming a community of some sort that you can really be real with uh it saved my life really it did it's a, it's important
0: and you had mentioned earlier about kind of the di- the disparity of care where you know like women women and children were kind of given whatever you know was on hand and it kind of made me think back to um you know the uh, early 90s when magic johnson announced his hiv status and I, I don't know why this particular, this Oprah episode stood out. So Oprah Winfrey was uh, interviewing this woman that had uh, contracted HIV from a previous relationship and the guy didn't tell her. And Oprah kind of cavalierly said, well, Magic Johnson's living with it and he's doing great. And I remember this woman like just turning and and staring at her and saying, you cannot compare my level of care to Magic Johnson. He has access to the best doctors in the world. She goes, I'm not getting any of that. And it was, and I remember it distinctly because Oprah Oprah just shut up. Like she didn't know what to say. And I think a lot of people thought that like, oh, well, Magic's got it and he's great. And I mean, and he's still, you know, doing well today, but due to the advances in treatment that we talked a little bit about, but I mean, you you were experiencing that as well, where it was just, they were just giving people kind of whatever, and certainly people that had money and the means mm-hmm. were able to get much better treatment, and everybody yeah. else just had to fend for themselves.
1: And I was one of those people who got better treatment, because um, we had really good health insurance. Uh, my husband uh, had a job with Stellar Health Insurance. I remember getting on uh, human growth hormone shots, uh, which are just... Freaking so expensive! Like uh, I don't. I think back in the nineties, there was something like eight thousand dollars a month. And I went to get it at the pharmacy, and this pharmacy um, had a lot of uh, HIV positive people. That um, because it's right next to our doctor who does all HIV positive. And he looked at me and he said, "How did you get your insurance to pay for this? Like there are so many people who want on this, even people with insurance." And I haven't been able to get any of the insurance to pay for it. And I said, I just, I, I just, they just covered it, you know? So we just, we were, we were fortunate. Um, uh, we, yeah. I mean, I say this with, with the 3030 project, which, you know, I'm bringing uh building healthcare buildings in places around the world that are, oh man, the, the healthcare access is, no, I want to. I want to I'm segue into that, right? And I and I always say to people, you know, my story is totally a story of privilege. It's a story of doctors and hospitals, and medicine and health insurance. Most poor women around the world would have just died of the blood loss. There wouldn't have been any, My aid story is a privilege story, right? I had a blood transfusion. Those are not like available in very many places where, you know, poor rural places around the world. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm very aware of that. Even, you know, with COVID, like, Mm -hmm. you know, go hide in the cabin in the woods for a year, you know, that, that isn't everyone's story. That's not most people's story actually. Right.
0: Right. But I do, I want to move into the thirty thirty project because it's so great what you're doing. Um this is something that you co-founded with your son Ryan in 2014 mm-hmm. and and your goal is to build 30 clinics in 30 years so that more people will be able to get care.
1: No, Mark our goal well my goal was first to build one clinic. Um I thought you know I was working for Construction for Change vetting their building projects and they build for other organizations in impoverished areas around the world. Um And not just health, they do community buildings and schools and things like that. Um, So I was already working for this nonprofit construction company. So my big idea, my kids wanted to celebrate that it survived 30 years in 2014. And so my big plan was, why don't we raise money to build one healthcare facility um, somewhere that lacks healthcare access? And I knew of several because I I was the one that vetted um, the applications. And Ryan looked at me, and he says, Mom. And I'm like, what? He goes, we can't just build one. You've lived 30 years. We need to build 30. And I just looked at him like, oh, my gosh, that is so many more than one. I mean, like, I didn't even know what to say. And somehow he talked me into that. And we had a lot of help from um, Mac Moore and Ryan Lewis, the, the group. Um, and, you know, that helped a lot. They had an international stage and um they actually added a dollar per ticket uh, uh, to, to help finance. I think that built three different facilities for us just their ticket sales alone. Um, but uh, it was actually the thirty thirty stands for that for thirty years we would build thirty. The thirty years I'd live, we would build thirty healthcare facilities. Not help, uh, help. We would build thirty healthcare facilities in thirty years. So anyway. All that to say, we launched in 2014. Uh, Thank goodness, we had raised, we got all the money raised by 2019, which was a real blessing. We had no idea COVID was coming and having events and raising money became very much more difficult after that. Um, We did have some delays in some of our buildings. So the last two uh, clinics, one in India and one in Kenya are being built right now and should be done early next year. So that, that's a 10-year turnaround, um, which was pretty fast, really, um, for 30 facilities. So we were construction for change. They're experts in this, and they, they, we partnered with them to build, build our buildings. Um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, my 3030 30 bank account for buildings almost empty because we just have a few more p- payments to those clinics that are being built. That's so, so amazing. Yeah, you should so be that's really right. proud. Our book sales—all our book sales—are actually going to. We opened a new fund called the Thirty Thirty Project Legacy Fund to continue through our book proceeds uh, to go to organizations working towards healthcare access and equity. Um, you know, both in the United States and abroad. So that's been fun, uh, just to be able to give back even a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Well, I definitely want to remind people that if they do buy the book, that proceeds from the sale will be going to this fund. So yeah. make sure that you're doing that. And if people want to find out more about the project, you can go to 3030, the numbers 3030project.org. And I spent a little time on that before we spoke to see what's going on with that. It's, it's incredible work you're doing.
1: Thank you. Our our website for the book is just stillpositive.com and we have... um. Uh, button up there that you can actually read about the 3030 Project Legacy Fund, too, just to see how, we're, how that is going and who this month will get um, our book proceeds. So that's that's there also.
0: So looking ahead to the future, I mean, there's so many strides towards education and treatment, and, and there's a lot of positive things there. But I'm still seeing kind of a slide backward towards fear and persecution of gay people, trans people, Absolutely. Um, that um, that's really disturbing. I just was wondering, what do you think about this and do you have any fears disturbing. around that? You
1: had a that was a perfect word for it. Um yes, even though the treatment and care of people who are HIV positive has like gone forward light years, stigma and discrimination is has gotten worse. Um for especially for certain communities. And um yeah, I you know the whole political uh, scene in the last few years um, has just given per- permission to people um, to kind of be uh, hateful and and I, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book I just want people yeah I feel like the the fastest way to, change some of that is for people to actually meet people who are different than them. And so I tried my best to introduce different people and, and, and their stories. And I'm not like, I'm tried not to tell people what to do or what to think. But I hope there was some building of compassion as they read the stories, you know, even stories of people very different than them who have different political or religious beliefs. It's like, you know, the bottom line is there's 8 billion people in the world now. And we're we're here together in this giant community. Let's just try to be kind. You let's just try to listen. You know, let's just try to, you know, no matter what religion you are, they're almost all say we should love each other. Like, let's just start there, you know? Right. And so I feel like I'm hopeful that um people with some strong views that actually hurt other people will think about it, you know that some conversations can start um, I'm excited that possibly I might be the book of the month for a couple of churches um and it's a great church book because i I have been in I have gone the gamut of super evangelical to, you know, a less, you know, I'm definitely inclusive and so more liberal on the Christian spectrum, but there's a lot of questions that would just be great to talk about, you know? Um, I love creating conversation. And so I'm hopeful that um, I'm glad that we're supporting healthcare and all that, but my bigger hope is that people will just be nicer and kinder. Yeah. And, Consider it. You know, like, wouldn't that be nice? You know, it would be
0: so nice. And you're so right. Like, if you look at, you know, any any huge world religion, it's like the golden rule kind of applies in in every single one in some way. You know, yeah. and it, it, if it could be that simple, you know, just be a little kinder, a little more understanding, have some compassion for people, and not so much hatred of the other or someone yeah. who's different. Yeah. Right, yeah, and I hope your book does get into a lot of those book clubs and organizations i hope so too.
1: I, hope so. I just think conversation and um listening you know i just I think it goes a long ways, you know, I've done with speaking for years and years and years, and I mean since nineteen ninety four I've been a public speaker I did take a few years off, but um I have seen so many different rooms I walk in to in different settings where I can see on people's faces that they, they already have an attitude before I like open my mouth. And then I know I'm, I know I'm making headway when they go from this to like this. And it's like, <laughs> hey <laughs> I just did a uh, uh, um, speaking uh, gig and it was an auditorium and they had the lights down so Low in the audience, and the lights so strong on me that I couldn't see the audience, and I, I should have just said turn the lights up because I actually can't give a speech without seeing the people and how reading them. You know, um, I mean, I can, but it's not, it's not as fun. So anyway, I just, I mean, everything from I used to work in the prison system, and um, you know, work for the health department with. With at-risk communities, and so that required me going into several um, high security prisons and into the juvenile detention. And I just, you know, I would and I also worked at Nordstrom, uh, you know, because neither of them paid enough. And I would come into the prison, and especially if it was a group um of men, and you know, I would look like Nordstrom because I probably came from there, and they'd just be like, what like, <laughs> arms this, folded, just this, tuned out. You know, suburban white woman have to tell us, you know? And then I would start with, I've been HIV positive for X amount of years and blah blah blah. And they would instant like it was instant. Like, oh wow. You know, like so and that I just love that. And it's like, let's talk about it, you know, and and, and it was really it's it's kind of that's the funnest thing about having having HIV as a as a woman. <laughs> It, it uh, could be anything, right? A little shocking, you know. It's not so much anymore, but back in the day, it was just like, "What? What?" You know. And so, as a, I, you know, I've been an educator. My dad was a superintendent of schools. Like I grew up with educators. I love, I, I love being up front teaching, and so it, it's just the, um, it's interesting when you can like sort of defuse an audience a little. And and then be able to like creatively start having some great discussion. So, well, I'm Hello. so
0: glad your voice is out there, and I can just imagine, you know, seeing their preconceived notion, you know, just kind of be tossed on its ear, like what?
1: Yeah. <laughs> what did she
0: say? And then being able to listen and and receive, you know, what yeah. what you're. What you're offering is just amazing. So, how can people find out? You know, a little more about you. Would the Thirty Thirty Project be the best site?
1: Probably these days, because that that was launched ten years ago. Would be on our book um, our book website, still talk, still We're also uh, we do most of our um, public stuff on Instagram. So we're still positive book. At still positive book on Instagram. So
0: perfect. Stillpositivebook.com look for you on Instagram. Yeah. And I appreciate, appreciate everybody listening.
1: Please do a review. Yes, do a review. I will <laughs> I'm learning all about books. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not really an author in per se. I'm a person with a story who wrote a book. And so I'm learning all sorts of things about you know what authors do. Um, But one thing I learned is that you actually get the more reviews you have, the better position you are in advertising on these sites. So, yeah, please, please do review um, for our book. We would really love that. It's your gift back to the author if you like their book at all.
0: Yeah. Well, I will definitely do that because I love to do reviews for people.
1: <laughs> you know, you know, when you do a review, some people like to, you know, do a long one. You only have to put a couple sentences, and then how many stars you would give it, which is great, and give us lots of stars. We need it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Help get the word out. <laughs> Head over to Amazon. Well, I so appreciate you spending some time with me today, and I hope that your story can inspire some of our listeners because you never know is going to grab this podcast. Yeah, it, it, all all over the world. I always love to look at the stats and then like, wow, somebody actually listened in, you know, Timbuktu or whatever. It's like some crazy place. Um, that but it, is get, crazy. it gets That's out there. That's you
1: can see that. You can see where they were.
0: Yeah, you can, see, you can see their stats when you go into your account. You can see what countries, you know, that people that listen. Cool.
1: That's
0: cool. I, I always get a kick out of that because I imagine like one person in that country, you know, sitting in front of their computer or listening on their phone. So your, your tentacles are going to go out and hopefully reach a lot of people and and they'll listen and and hear the story. And hopefully if people like this podcast, they'll give me a review (laughs) because I like reviews too like, share, let people know what's going on. And also if you like this podcast, check out the other podcasters on the mindbodyspirit.fm
1: podcast network. And thank
0: you so much, Julie, for joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me.